Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Rupesh is here again. Really excited to bring back another guest. We have a number of guests lined up. Today, our topic is about energy, the environment, and all things climate change. And this topic, I, you know, I always think about. And I read a couple of articles recently, and they've been written by our next guest, Colin Goldman, who is an economist at RBC, and I feel very privileged to have him on today. Colin, thanks to you for joining Two Nobodies. I'm a big fan of the work that you've written, and I've listened to you on other podcasts, and it really is a privilege to have you on our show. So thank you for making time for us today. Thanks for, so much for having me, and, and really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, that's uh, thank you so much. Um, before we get into your the work that you've written about, I always like to understand the person behind the the story, you know, and just uh, you know, I've checked out your LinkedIn profile. It looks like you worked at Finance Canada and you you now work for RBC. But uh, how did you get involved into the climate space? What's that journey look like for you? Yeah, uh, my career has sort of taken a couple of interesting turns. So I, I'm an economist by training. I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Ottawa. I lived in Ottawa for about 10 mm -hmm. years. Um, and then I did my master's degree at UBC, which, uh, you know, being surrounded by redwoods and ocean and all those sorts <laughs> yeah. of things kind yeah. of leaned me a certain way. But uh, my career, you know, started off with a job at Finance Canada, as you mentioned. I was doing mostly mortgage finance policy and regulation. Um, so really adjusting rules around mortgages to sort of support the stability and affordability of the housing market. Mm. Um, so I've kind of worked on media issues no matter yeah. what I've done. Yeah. Uh, but after a number of years at Finance Canada, an opportunity came up to work at the bank. Um, and I'm originally from Toronto. My family is all here. My sister, um, you know, my, my niece, for example, was uh, just coming to, you know, existence. So it was yeah. a bit of a family draw that brought me to what Toronto. What part of Toronto are you from? Uh, I grew up outside of the city. Uh, we moved around a little bit, but uh, we moved here in 97. Okay. When I was a kid, my dad moved here for work from Switzerland. Okay. Um, and then we lived, you know, in the city center for a couple of years and then progressively moved further out, you know, okay. as the family got bigger, more kids. Yeah. Um, I always and, I always ask the Toronto question because when people say they're from Toronto, I'm like, are you from Toronto? Yeah, not or, from the or... city directly. Right, we lived right. in North York for a couple okay, of years. Okay, I'm from North York as well. So Yeah, okay. So yeah. we moved to Markham and then to King. So I spent yeah. most of my like cognizant youth uh, sort of like near farmland in yeah. King City. Yeah. And that area has changed a lot. But uh, yeah, I don't know where I was. But anyway, <laughs> we... Um, we moved here and uh, I was working on this housing challenge um, and then I wanted to move back to Toronto uh, for family reasons and then got the job at the bank and, you know, didn't really start working on climate right away. I was working mm -hmm. on sort of fiscal policy and housing issues given my background and then an opportunity presented itself to work on energy and energy really became about climate change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I started working on that towards the tail end of 2019. Um, and thrilled to be working on climate change because I mm. think it's a really important issue and it's something I've been kind of following from personal interest, you know, thinking about my personal impact on the planet, you know, can I drive sure. an EV, sure. can I, you know, eat less meat, these sorts of things that you hear about. Um, 
you know, in a measured way. I'm not like a full vegetarian and I do in, mm-hmm. in fact have a, a car that's powered by gasoline, but uh, really trying to cut my impact on the planet as much as possible where possible. And so working on it has been really like nice to align my work with my values. So the yeah. bank, um, I would say it's still sort of early days for the climate research stuff. I've been working on it full time for about three years now. Okay. Um, and it's really, you know, a, an area that's growing in focus for the organization and, and particularly on the sort of economics and thought leadership side. Our team's mandate is to, you know, analyze the sort of critical macroeconomic issues for the country. Mm. And uh, climate is, you know, has always been one of those things, but is becoming a central focus yeah, um, as yeah, we sort of understand, you know, the impacts of natural disasters and storms, as well as, you know, the sort of transition impacts on the economy. Um, these things are, are growing in importance. And so we, we are working to kind of make sure we have a centralized view of that. Well, you kind of answered my next question, which is when I have told people who I was recording with today and I said an economist from RBC, their natural thinking was that the focus was going to be something purely economically related, right? And um, I mean, it's such a broad topic, but I think people have a view of what an economist at RBC probably focuses on. And when I said, well, it's about climate change, I think they were just naturally surprised about that. And so you kind of talked about so why RBC or I guess any of the big banks, I think a lot of the big banks have people focused on these topics that may not be, I don't know if it's a non-traditional topic or something, but can you talk a little bit more about why we're seeing maybe big banks like RBC focus on these kind of areas? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the first thing we ought to recognize is that climate has always had, certainly over the last number of decades, um, a kind of niche focus in economics. There's always been environmental economists. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, for a long time, been economists focused on climate change as an issue, whether it be understanding the macroeconomic impact of a warming climate or a changing climate, or, you know, the policy prescriptions around that. You know, I mean, economists get a bit of a bad rap <laughs> in that regard because they're the big proponents of the carbon tax. Right, right. Um, and and I think we can, you know, if you'd like, we can debate the carbon tax more sure, sure. Uh, directly. But what's interesting about that, I think, is that there are there's a natural role for economists in understanding climate change. You know, mm-hmm. we're far from the experts on the science of, you know, how additional greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are going to warm the planet and what that means for storms and floods and all those sorts of things sure, sure. Um, and, and heat waves. But what we do do well, economists, is really understand how unexpected events and shocks impact the economy. And that's going to be a really critical part of the analysis around climate change, mm-hmm. at least in my view. You know, as we think about whether or not we want to, you know, go harder, faster on emissions reductions, the real question is, you know, what's the cost of doing nothing? What's the consequence of waiting? Mm-hmm. Um, and these are sort of the big questions. And economists, I think, are really well equipped to kind of think in those sort of like relative changes. We well, often in economics, we'll talk about, you know, what what is the economy going to do if we don't do anything? What's our baseline scenario? And then we shock our models, you know, with higher energy prices mm-hmm. or with labor productivity shocks or, you know, all these little shocks that are constantly buffeting the economy. And then we talk about what's happened in the model, what's happening in the economy when you give it that shock. So it's, I think economics is really a, a, a study of a series of disruptions on a sort of complex system. Right, and right. climate change is 
you know, a classic disruptor. It's changing everything we do in really profound ways that we don't have a good model for how to think about. And so I think that there's a central role for economics. And because, you know, banks are major employers of economists, like basically mm. the banks and the federal government mm. in Canada that, <laughs> that do a large share of economic employment, um, it's natural that they have an interest in, in that, you know, aspect. And then the other thing I think is it's natural for banks to think about the sort of major shifts in the economy that are going yeah. forward. I mean, we're perhaps a little bit unique as a team at RBC versus some of our, you know the other banks on the street because we have always had this sort of thematic focus to our research. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the last you know decade or so, we've been focused on you know human capital skills development, tech and mm-hmm. innovation disruption, and now climate as sort of central you know themes of where disruption is going to come from in right. the sort of future right. economy and wrapping our heads around those is is really an important part of what we do helping get a sort of centralized view for the organization on these issues and for the country as as a whole and so i think that's where our focus on climate change has come from and then i think increasingly you're seeing you know climate becoming a business issue rather than a social issue mm-hmm. which is really important and and you know i think that's a testament to the effort of activists and economists and, you know, politicians across the globe over the last 20, 30 years, pushing this issue to the forefront and businesses now recognizing, you know, it's not optional to cut emissions. It's not optional to have a net zero target. These are mandatory things we need. It's imperative that we address this issue. And in that respect, you know, it, it, it's imperative that we understand the consequences of action, inaction, the types of action we can take, what the consequences of those decisions might be. That's really what I see the role of our team is, is helping to kind of inform those conversations at the organization and national government level. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, businesses uh, connecting to climate a little bit more. And we're seeing, uh, and you brought it up a little bit near the end there, that politicians are having a role tying the economy to the environment. And especially here in Canada, I mean, the current federal government's really pushing on that message. Do you feel that people are really connecting to that and, and seeing that, you know, climate is a big disruptor to the economy and we really need to be taking this seriously and that this is no longer just an environmental piece, but it is really going to affect and is affecting our economy. Like where do you think we're at as a country and, and just the general perception of tying those two things together? Yeah. I mean, I think, especially as it relates sort of consumer or voter sentiment on these issues, climate has kind of come and gone as an important issue. Mm -hmm. But I think the trend is the right direction Mm. in the sense that, you know, the classic, you know, trope, I think, in the sort of climate polling space is climate change is top of mind until there's anything else to think about. Mm. You know, so especially in the current macroeconomic environment where we we're talking about recession, we're talking about inflation, You know, we're talking about interest rate rising, affecting affordable, like, you know, you know, um, just the cost of living, Mm. affordability of housing and groceries and all these things. It's natural, I think, for people to kind of shift focus. But what I would say I think is a good trend is that, you know, I think 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. environmentalism was kind of this niche thing. You know, it was like about saving the whales and Mm. not cutting down old growth forests, both really important goals Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and they matter a lot. And we're starting to understand the impact of those things on the sort of climate system. But 
when there was a recession or there were labor market impacts or interest rates were rising, it fell, you know, from issue number three to issue number 50 right. for for households. And I think we're now in a place where it was issue number one in 2019. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we saw that in a, in a federal election yeah, here. Yeah. And maybe now it's issue number three or four. Right. And right. so that I take, you know, some people will kind of take that as a disheartening message, you know, oh, well, people only care about the economy and jobs. Yeah. yeah. But I think the story here is like people do still care about the environment, even when there are things to be worried about. That's and, a great and frame. understandably. Yeah. 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 That's a great, really great frame. Um, yeah, you're right. I, I think it, it's still one of the main priorities, despite everything that's happening. And I think people are seeing with rising food prices, people are seeing the links of climate, you know, effects to drought and how this affecting agriculture. And that's probably also contributing to rising food prices. Like, I, I think people are starting to see those connections, like they're becoming a lot more overt. So I think that's a great point. Um, one of the other things you said about your story is um, your time in BC with the Redwoods and such. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm in Alberta. And whenever I go and visit BC, it always allows me to reconnect with the land and just like think about, just think about the environment a lot more and the impacts of climate change and that sort of thing. It's really interesting to hear that, you know, that was also part of your connection to climate is your time in BC in the Redwoods. And I always think that if people just spent a little bit more time connecting with the environment, it will just internalize a lot more. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, perhaps I was focused a bit more on on BC than my home province of Ontario, mm. because I did spend quite a lot of time, um, particularly in Algonquin Park. And I don't know if oh, you, know, yeah. course, you know, I mean, you're from North York, yeah, so you know, yeah, yeah. but uh, for, for listeners who don't, yeah, Algonquin yeah. Park is a big provincial park just outside of Toronto, like about three hours drive away. When I was, um, you know, a, a teenager, youth teenager, I, you know, would go to summer camp and we'd do these big canoe trips in Algonquin Park. And I still do that to this day now, just with friends. Um, and and I think that that connection to the natural world is a big part of why I, I care so much about this issue. And I'm thrilled that people are caring more and more about it. Um, I also think, you know, what is perhaps a bit different in the narrative around climate change nowadays is the recognition of the sort of human impact. Mm-hmm. We... You know, I think often in the, you know, I mean, I wasn't alive in the 1970s, but I think the focus of the narrative then was really a discussion of, you know, protecting the natural world and this Mm -hmm. sort of altruistic reason for climate action. You know, don't cut down these old growth forests. They're really beautiful and important ecosystems for the squirrels and, you know, other animals. But I think what we're seeing now is more sort of wholesale recognition that the climate system, we're integrated into that. We rely on the natural world. You know, biodiversity, I think, sustains like a huge part of economic activity as well as just like human life. 100%. And so sacrificing that, you know, for what is effectively, you know, our energy needs mm-hmm. and the sort of fuel of modern life, that's a real tension. And I think people are starting to recognize, you know, first of all, we're, we're moving towards a world because of those energy choices that will become more challenging to inhabit just, you know, for humans facing the impacts of heat waves and Mm. storms and flooding and all these sort of natural disaster impacts, but also one that's increasingly unsustainable for the planet ecosystem that we rely on, you know, for our food and for all these things that are very intimate to us that matter a lot. Yeah. 
And I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, this idea that like food prices being related to droughts is helping people kind of link these ideas in their minds. Mm. And I would even say, you know, there's other examples of, of where energy has become an important thing people are thinking about on a day-to-day basis. I mean, especially if you look to Europe, you know, with, with what is, you know, effectively a, a war fueled by energy geopolitics, yep. you know, with real human impacts mm-hmm. um, and tragic ones at that, I think the narrative is starting to shift a little bit about the imperative of, you know, moving away from a system that is actually more fragile than we we thought it was. Mm. The The politics of energy being so linked to war and these sort of human impacts and, you know, day-to-day life in Europe, you know, people wondering how much is my energy bill going to be in the winter? You know, am I going to, am I, you know, for lack of a better framing, am I going to freeze in the dark in mm. February? Um, those are real kind of reminders for, for people that this is an important issue. Yeah. And it, yeah. it really, you know, it's tragic that it's, it's taken or it has required that kind of impact. But I think the optimistic message out of all that is, is that, you know, through hardship comes change and comes innovation. And, and hopefully that will be a priming force to remind people that this is an important issue. We can't just stop thinking about when, you know, the economy gets bad. Yeah. And I think I, I think I read somewhere that there are a lot of Europeans who are doing as much as they can to shift to different sources of energy because they see it as a security issue. Right. And and that, that's encouraging to hear for sure. Well, I saw a great chart on Twitter and I, I, you know, apologies to whoever tweeted it and I don't know the sourcing anymore. That's how it goes. But uh, heat pump applications for federal funding for heat pump installation. So subsidies effectively from the German government Mm. were, you know, effectively as high in August this year as they were all year last year. Wow. So, you know, I guess that makes it about a 12 fold increase in heat Mm. pump installations Mm. and, you know, the importance of the heat pump is that it's both an energy efficiency and an energy switching mm. effort. And so mm-hmm. it's getting households off gas and using less energy overall to heat their homes. And that, you know, this will have a small impact on the current energy crisis in Europe. But it is, you know, this long-term impact of moving away from natural gas for home heating. Mm. It's both going to have an important energy systems impact in that Europe will need less gas. And it's going to have an important climate impact since buildings are, you know, a huge part of our climate uh-huh. footprint, especially in Europe. Yeah. So th- these are encouraging signs, I think. And and is there a lesson for Canada in not, you know, delaying action so long that we're faced with a crisis that crystallizes action? Can we proactively move to a system where we're doing more clean investment? And, you know, we've just put out a paper um, in our proof point series, which folks can read, um, which is focused on how much we're investing in, in you know, energy transition. Mm. And the story is, you know, we're not doing nearly enough. And in fact, we're falling behind. Mm. If, you, if you rank Canada against, you know, sort of developed country global peers, we're doing about half the investment. That is that public Europe and did. private sector investment or or just Yeah, so that's that's spending, you know, across a number of categories, both, you know, government subsidies but also, you know, private purchase of electric okay. vehicles and investment in, you know, new industrial processes that cut emissions. Um so that might be, you know, like steel making that doesn't involve coal, yeah. for yeah. example. Yeah. And those investments 
you know, the really shocking story about that is just how far ahead China has has leapt in the last number of years in clean investment. That's, you know, mostly renewable electricity and, and nuclear reactors and things like that. But this is really a huge shift in in the sort of investment landscape globally. And, you know, sadly, Canada is falling behind a little bit. And, and part of that is, you know, we do have a relatively energy intensive economy and it's going to cost us relatively more to transition. But, you know, getting a slow start isn't probably the way we should be approaching this problem. Right, right. I do want to I do want to lean into the two trillion dollar opportunity and the work you've done there. But maybe before we do that, as we're talking about energy security, we just had a recent election. Well, not election, but I mean, we had a change in government here in Alberta. And the conversation here in Alberta is, and I think probably in, in Saskatchewan as well, is how do we play a role in supporting energy security in Europe, for instance? Is 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 that feasible? Is that something Canada can actually play a role in? I mean, I imagine to set up the infrastructure and to get things moving, to get energy over to Europe is not an easy task or is going to, is just, you know, something you can just flip the switch and do. So is that actually a feasible argument, I guess? Yeah. I mean, so I think there's, there's two things that come to mind in that. And, and I'll just caveat this with this fact that it's not a specific issue I've looked at. So Mm. kind of shooting from the hip here a little bit, I'm far from the banks, you know, expert on, you know, the economics of let's say LNG projects, Sure, but you know, energy markets, especially oil and to a lesser extent, natural gas are global commodity markets. And so, you know, we may not have the infrastructure we need to, you know, boost LNG exports. Like we have one terminal in construction, it's not ready yet. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that, you know, C- Canadian gas can make it to Europe, like we don't have a pipeline that's going to get that gas to the, the Canadian East Coast, let mm-hmm. alone the US East Coast where they already have LNG terminals. We don't have an LNG terminal. You know, it's not clear how long this energy disruption is going to last. Right. So I think, you know, there's work to be done on the economic case for that. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, Mm. you know, as long as energy prices stay high, there is, you know, an incentive to export that gas. But, you know, Canada has deep energy ties with the U.S. and the U.S. has some of this infrastructure. And so, you know, if the U.S. is sending its gas to Europe, then we can play a role in supporting their domestic gas markets. Right. And that, you know assists energy security because it means the U.S. is able to provide gas to Europe. Mm. I think the same goes for the oil sector. And and the real challenge conceptually here is, you know, if we want to contribute to energy security and we want to offset production declines in Russia, we'll have to have the hard conversation domestically about what that means for our emissions. Because, you know, when we drill for more oil and gas, or we extract more heavily from the oil sands, there's an emissions cost mm-hmm. to doing that. And what I think is perhaps under-discussed, and we wrote a paper in, in April on this, it's called The New Climate Bargain, um, is really this idea that we can do both. You know, it's not an either-or scenario where we where we expand energy production and waylay our climate plans. Mm. You know, we need to be kind of fully cognizant of, of the imperative of decarbonizing our energy sector and making investments today in future technologies like carbon capture in the oil sands that will sustain production in a, in a more sustainable way. 
going forward that doesn't have the kind of climate warming impact or, or climate changing impact that current production processes have. There's a big question around how you do that and whether the policy support environment is sufficient to kind of encourage these investments. But, you know, with high energy prices, there's a, a surplus of capital available in mm. in Alberta and in the oil patch to to do some of this investment. And so it's a question, I think, of of setting out the right environment for encouraging decarbonization investment. We have some ideas in the paper. Mm-hmm. I won't belabor that too much, but, you know, helping industry manage the risk associated with these long-term projects into this sort of uncertain oil environment where we don't know what oil demand is going to be in 2030, 2040, Mm. or 2050. And we don't know what the supply of oil is going to be, and therefore we can't forecast prices with any level of accuracy. We'll need to be thinking about creative ways to sort of manage those risks and help industry through those. Um, And, you know, there there are ways... We've done that in other markets in the past. You know, LNG has these long-term contracts. Perhaps that's something we need to be thinking about with U.S. oil refineries and finding ways to sort of ensure that we're not finding ourselves in a world where, you know, geopolitical pressures are determining energy prices for the globe through 2050. Because Mm -hmm. I think that's what really has been crystallized in my mind through this period is there's a lot of power in being an energy producer and there's a lot of opportunity to limit that power as we change our energy system, which, you know, this is, after all, an energy transition. Yeah, and we should yeah. be identifying the things that work and don't work in our current energy system and solving for them in the future energy system since we have to transition over anyway. Right, right. Um, I have heard this argument about, you know, if we're going to really get involved with providing more global energy security, what that means for Canada's emission targets. And we might have to have that hard conversation, but I'm hearing what you're saying is that we don't necessarily need to compromise our emission targets um, and we can do both. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the best way to kind of conceptualize that is that there are investments we can make, you know, right now that cut emissions in the oil and gas sector and there are incentives to do that, you know, government regulations coming in on methane emissions, for example, those are, you know, for the most part, relatively affordable adjustments producers can make to address those emissions. Mm. And that can help offset, you know, the rise in total emissions from extracting more barrels of oil or, or barrel equivalents of gas. And I think that discussion, you know, is an important one to be having as we sort of transit through this period of energy disruption. Um, there are technologies available. I mean, you know, we identified significant cuts in our in our two trillion transition piece that kind of suggested this. And, and in our new climate bargain um, paper, we identified, you know, that, you know, from 2021 levels, there were like, you know, 500,000 barrels per day or so of additional production Mm -hmm. from oil sands and conventional production that could be raised and contribute to energy security globally. But the cost of that is, you know, 9 million tons of additional greenhouse gases per year. Mm. And the cost of abatement would be, you know, one and a half billion extra dollars in abatement spending in, in the oil and gas sector. Overall, with these prices, you know, the net benefit is extremely economically positive Mm. of doing that. We, you know, net of abatement costs, we can still, you know, have profitable oil extraction. But it is, 
imperative that we do both. We can't lose sight of the climate goals we have because they are, you know, existential for humanity yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. yeah. That, that debatement though, that assumes that we have enough CCSU uh, carbon capture storage projects in place to be able to do that effective debatement, right? Yeah. So, I mean, some of this will be, you know, methane and electrification and things that don't okay. take 10 okay. years to build. Okay. Um, okay. And so we, I think, you know, these 9 million tons, that's achievable. Mm. Um, certainly fully offsetting the impact of, of additional uh, extraction. But you are right that over the long term to kind of meet these medium term targets in the energy space, you know, the emissions reduction plan from the federal government has a 42% reduction in oil emissions from current levels by 2030. That's going to require a big infrastructure build out mm -hmm. with current technology. And that's, you know, not going to be a cheap endeavor. It's going to require a lot of upfront capital. I think we put it at about $60 billion in spending over the next 10 years. Mm. That's, you know, I mean, that's a lot of capital to mobilize for sure. a sort of long-lived asset in a very uncertain environment. And, and I think that means we probably don't have the policy setting right. Now, the government is thinking about how you do that. You know, they've announced a, an investment tax credit for carbon capture. There are concerns around whether or not we can comp compete with, you know, what the U.S. has just done in announcing a, a very mm -hmm. generous production tax credit for captured carbon. But I would say the space is moving and... Increasingly, I think we need to start seeing announcements from Canadian industry in decarbonization um, if we're going to meet those targets. So there's a role, I think, for the financial industry to play in structuring projects correctly, the energy industry to play in identifying the best projects and funding them, and then the government to play to make sure that it has the right policy and support system in place to get those decisions made if we want to meet those targets. Yeah. Carbon capture storage is an interesting space. I mean, the conversation in Alberta, that's been since, you know, the mid to late 2000s, and there was real strong policy towards it to encourage it. And, you know, there's the shell is working with the provincial government on a carbon capture storage plant. And then all of a sudden it just disappeared, like for a few years there where no one was talking about carbon capture storage. People were skeptical about it. And now it's like, oh, it is one of the prime abatement solutions, you know, it's just, it's interesting to see that conversation. Yeah. I think that conversation is, is largely one of, of recognizing that, you know, ambition is accelerating on climate change mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. don't have other options really. Right. I mean, you know, the fundamental challenge in the energy system is how do we produce high temperatures without the use of fossil fuels, which are mm -hmm. extremely energy dense. And, um, that's where carbon capture is, is really an important part of, of the decarbonization pathway for Canada, because we do have a lot of these heat intensive industries, mm -hmm. whether it be, you know, our pulp and paper mills, whether it be oil and gas, seg, de-extraction in the oil sands, mm -hmm. or, you know, cement and steel making, all of these things kind of require these high temperatures and the kind of intuitive, nice thing about carbon capture is it, it's a retrofit opportunity you kind of add this carbon capture unit mm. to an existing facility and you don't have to change the front end mm. that may not be the most efficient decarbonization pathway where alternative exist like you know even if we could make a carbon capture system small enough to attach to your home furnace it probably doesn't make sense economically to do mm. that and in the home heating segment we have other technologies we have heat pumps sure. we have electric furnaces right. we can kind of do this system that that 
cobbles together a couple of technologies with retrofits of building envelopes and windows and doors and things like that and get to a better solution. But in a lot of industries, particularly heavy industries, we don't have a better solution. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's pivot to the, the $2 trillion economy. You read, or the $2 trillion opportunity, sorry, I should say. Uh, I read that headline and certainly is eye-catching. $2 trillion, that's, what is our GDP at? I feel like that's the majority of Canada's GDP. Yeah, um, $2 trillion. So I know that you have identified several pathways. Maybe talk to our listeners about where the opportunity lies. Yeah, so the $2 trillion number is really... <clears throat> the scale of capital mobilization or spending mobilization will have to do over the next 30 or so years. Okay. And the way we kind of approached this problem was to conceptualize, you know, what the emissions challenge was for the Canadian economy across all the sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the sectors individually, identify where the emissions are coming from and what technologies we have available today uh, without falling into the sort of future technology trap is like, you know, maybe we'll use hydrogen to drive our personal vehicles. Sure, maybe we would. Ten years ago, that seemed feasible. Today, it doesn't seem so feasible, right? right. We're probably going to do battery electric vehicles. So that that technology view of like what's available today, how do we accelerate, how do we move, and then identifying the barriers we need to break down to get that done. That was really the conceptual work we did for the report. And from a fundamental perspective, what it really means is we need to be spending 60 to $80 billion a year on energy transition on an ongoing basis over the next 30 years. Mm. So that's a heck of a lot of money. Um, how and we're going to do that, that. That comes from, again, both public and private sectors. Like it's not. Yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the scale of the challenge, this $2 trillion problem. What I take away from that anyway, is it means the government can't do this for us. It's just mm. way too big a challenge. You know, Government spending on an annual basis, yeah, it's $300 billion at the federal level. Mm -hmm. But how much can we actually move that without running into problems? You know, we've seen that over the course of the pandemic, huge changes in government spending. Sure. And a large part of that is, you know, why we have inflationary impacts Mm. in the economy today. So there are consequences of doing everything with debt financed public spending. And so you know, what we talked about in the report was the real need for the private sector to get on side this transition effort. And that's especially true in the sort of capital intensive areas, because, you know, it's 60 to 80 billion or 2 trillion over 30 years. But some of these things need to happen now, we need to make the investment for the whole carbon capture system over the next five years, that's going to be extremely expensive mm-hmm. up front. And so these sort of capex challenges are, are particularly crystallized in the industry um, space. So the way we kind of looked at the problem was to segment out the different industries. And, you know, the best way I have to kind of characterize this is we've got a couple of industries where we have most of the technologies we need. We kind of call them net zero ready. And specifically, that's the electricity sector, Mm. buildings, and to some degree, transportation. And then there's kind of more challenging sectors heavy industry where we're going to have to deploy a bunch of CCS. It's terribly uneconomic today Mm. without regulatory changes. Uh, And then there's the sort of sectors we don't really know what we're going to do with current technology. The big ones there would be agriculture and other forms of transportation, particularly things like freight transport for goods, Mm. 
marine transport, and the big one in this space is aviation. Mm. Um, and we can talk a little bit about each of those, but the fundament is, you know, in those sectors where we have the technologies we mostly need, electricity and buildings and personal transportation, it's a, not so much a matter of technological development or skills development or anything. It's really just like, how do we get consumers to retrofit their homes and install heat pumps? How do we get them to drive EVs? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that the Canadian electricity system, which is already very clean, you know, yeah, yeah very green, yeah. low carbon yeah. globally, how do we make sure we can grow it to meet future electricity demand while maintaining very low emissions and right. in fact, getting it to net zero more quickly than the rest of the economy based on government targets. So that's what we talked about. I think we would argue that the challenges for Canada in the near term are focused on deployment of technology, EVs, heat pumps, and that sort of thing, and developing the technologies we're going to need in the future for sectors we don't know how we're going to decarbonize. So some would argue it's hydrogen. Others might argue it's direct air capture so we can continue mm -hmm. to use oil and gas to fly planes. Um, and so we don't need to make decisions on that today. We don't need to like pick a lane and say for aviation, we're doing, you know, biofuel kerosene. Mm -hmm. But we do need to develop solutions and we do need to kind of push all of these things down the sort of technological cost curve in the same way we did for wind and solar electricity generation over the course of the last decade. So this is going to require a lot of investment. And I think traditionally Canada hasn't been great at attracting a lot of investment. Productivity has always been an issue in our country. Um, are there certain jurisdictions, certain provinces or, or certain policies that you're seeing are doing a good job at attracting the kind of investment that you're, that we're needing to, to take advantage of this opportunity that you're speaking about? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it, it's going to depend on which sector you want to focus on. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you think about the electricity sector, for example, there are a couple of provinces that face key challenges. The big two are Ontario, which has population growth and, and you know, refurbishment of nuclear reactors, taking these big mm -hmm. sources of electricity offline. And the other big one is Alberta, which mm -hmm. also has population growth and is retiring its entire coal fleet. Mm -hmm. So replacing that coal um, fleet is really important. And, and what I would kind of focus the mind on in this space is just the sheer amount of renewables development Alberta has been able to get in the pipeline. I think For it's sure. like two gigawatts of solar yeah. being installed yeah. in Alberta. Oh, like that's the current pipeline for the next couple of years. And that's a huge shift. And a large part of that has been facilitated by, I would argue, I mean, there's other experts who may argue something different, but the market structure and the individual project economics of wind and solar in Alberta, like great resource. And then add to that a deregulated market where yeah, we can yeah. kind of get the heft of the private industry behind that development. Um, it, it's been important in getting the kind of speed of transition accelerating in, in the prairies mm. and that deregulated market structure and electricity allows for this sort of corporate power purchase agreement structure which has helped de-risk some of the revenues for these renewable power installations and really made the project economics more compelling yeah. so in some ways you know those sort of market-based things work really well that's the case i think largely because wind and solar already have compelling project costs mm. 
that may not be true for these sort of more complicated engineering installations like CCS that that don't have the same sort of economic push, you know, tailwind behind them. And I would point to, you know, some of the challenges of doing even just a policy oriented transition. You know, BC has been doing a lot of pushing on the sort of consumer subsidies for things like heat pumps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're still struggling with uptake as far as the current data suggests. Now, that may just be a lag as people kind of get their heads around these things. The mm-hmm. generous incentives might start to pull. But I think broadly, that's the challenge is, you know, there, there are other issues. It's not just upfront cost or the economics of the project that make people hesitant to kind of make these changes. And so I would say there are like bright spots, but generally, you know, transition, as I mentioned, Canada spending half of what Europe is on a, on a, you know, percent of GDP basis. I think we do need to accelerate. And I think it's incumbent on, you know, governments across the country, national and subnational and industry to really think about how they're going to deploy capital and, to layer on an additional challenge, it's getting pretty grim here. Um, the U.S. is is really pushing on this now. Yeah, yeah, Inflation yeah. Reduction Act, you know, the the Congressional Budget Office thinks it's going to be three hundred and eighty billion dollars of spending. Credit Suisse has done their own analysis, and they say it's going to be twice that. That's a big push on mm-hmm. a broad range of technologies: CCS, hydrogen production, you know, buildings and EVs. Um, renewable energy, you know, just within solar subsidies, those are kind of game. It's a, in the industry, I think it's being viewed as a game changing piece of legislation. Mm. And so I think, you know, while the U.S. is sort of where we're at now, spending about a half point of GDP on energy transition annually, the IRA is going to move the needle on that. Yeah. And so yeah. thinking about whether our policy environment is up to snuff with that, you know, push and whether there are opportunities for Canadians to leverage investments being made in the U.S., Canadian businesses in particular, kind of piggybacking on the spending the U.S. is doing, that would be pretty clever, I think, to, to sort of accelerate some of this economic transformation we need to do. Yeah, and, and, and the IRA uh, is a, for sure a game changer, and it's, it's something, so when I hear this $2 trillion opportunity, and Canada's largely been an export economy, we haven't really had that sort of internal attraction as much i mean like you there are certain you talked about the energy sector here the electricity market here in alberta and that's attracted investment that's great but i think across the board that's my curiosity or concern is is there enough demand or is our economy sizable enough to actually attract the kind of investment that we need especially when other countries that are much more sizable in their economy or or when they're when they move like Canada's kind of left in the dark like are we actually going to be able to be competitive here yeah i mean canada you know you can say it's a challenge or an opportunity that we're situated next to you know the largest economy in the world or, mm-hmm. or the, at least the largest consumer market. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a very integrated economy with the U S you know, like 80% of our exports or something that high go to the U S so, you know, it differs by industry. It's certainly 80% in, in energy products. And so, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you think about that scale. Sure. If the U S moves, we can kind of be left in the dust, as you said, but, it's also just a massive opportunity. Mm. If we can get, you know, the sort of nation to nation relationship right and recognize that Canada does have some unique advantages, particularly in the sort of level of skill in our labor force and, you know, our access to other markets and things like that. There, I think there are some opportunities. 
in scaling up a sort of export led economy in the way that we have traditionally, mm. um, you know, serving the market to the South. What I think is interesting about that challenge is the extent to which, you know, especially in the energy sector, the new energy system will rely as much on export as the current one. So if you think, you know, a, a world in which a huge portion of our primary energy demand comes from oil and gas, oil and gas are like very exportable commodities, right? right. We, we have, you know, linear infrastructure pipelines to do that. We can compress LNG and put it on mm-hmm. a boat. Oil largely goes on tankers. That's the story of the Trans Mountain expansion, trying to get, mm-hmm. you know, oil to new ports. These, you know, we have a century of experience exporting oil and gas. And a global energy system that's dominated by electricity and or potentially hydrogen, those two things are like inherently more difficult to move around. For sure. So we do have transmission infrastructure, but like an electron produced by an electricity generating station doesn't have the same sort of storage ability as like a barrel of oil. We can Mm -hmm. like fill barrels and put them in a cave somewhere and use them months later, years later. That is not the case for electricity. Mm -hmm. And on the hydrogen side, while we, I think, theoretically can store hydrogen in salt caverns and, you know, what we do with natural gas, similarly, exactly. It's not clear that it's as easy to export Mm -hmm. as natural gas. You know, hydrogen's a small molecule. It's much less energy dense. There's a lot of cost of like producing the hydrogen, mm-hmm. whether it be green or blue and capturing the carbon and then making it into methanol or ammonia and then shipping it across the world and then regasifying it and like the losses along the way and the new infrastructure you would need. It's not, I think, that clear that there's like as compelling an export opportunity mm-hmm. in the primary energy system. Now, I'm speculating wildly because, you know, we have to figure out the science behind these things. We have to know, you know, is it going to be ammonia or is it methanol Mm -hmm. to do the business case for them? But I think from a first principles approach, it's not that clear that the sort of export led energy system we have globally today is going to continue, you know, being the case in 2050. Right. But where there are opportunities, I think, for Canada in any event is, you know, in developing some of the new systems and technologies needed for transition um, and also some of the materials. You know, we have, we're, we're blessed with an endowment of critical minerals and, mm-hmm. you know, nuclear energy, um, uranium and things like that, that we can export. We know how to export. We're already mm-hmm. doing that nickel and titanium and lithium and whatever it might be for batteries. Um, but also just the expertise in how to do these things. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we saw that in Canada's nuclear industry, exporting can-do reactors mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. the globe. And that's, you know, tapered off now because of, you know, global trends in nuclear development. But what's, what's the next important energy tech? You know, what, what is our unique advantage in developing really clever ways to innovate in that space? I mean, SAG-D production is a great example of that. You know, it was this great effort by the Alberta government and private industry to develop a new way to extract this previously untapped oil resource. And, you know, it has led to a boom in the Western Canadian economy in a way that, you know, doesn't have very many parallels. Fracking for natural gas is another example of innovation in the energy system, you know, that that has led to huge economic opportunity. 
the real critical challenge I think for Canada is identifying the clean growth opportunity available mm-hmm. with tech development and then making sure we can start, found, scale, deploy those new energy technologies in Canada and then export them to the world. That's a bit a bit more difficult of a nut to crack because, you know, in the old energy system, if you had oil and you could get it out of the ground, you had an export market for mm-hmm. it. That's going to be a bit more challenging. There's a bit more groundwork to do on the new energy technology of tomorrow, I think. And, and I think to add another layer to this is that um, when you're talking about these clean growth opportunities, nuclear, critical minerals, all that, and not to just belabor like, you know, the point of view of like an Albertan, but I think there's an identity issue to that, right? Like I, I think there are uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, there, there's an identity of being an energy provider and what that really means and ignore the perspectives of people who are just like, you know, drill, baby, drill, and don't care about the environment. There are people who generally feel that they're providing a service that they're providing to the, the wealth of the country, that they're providing some sort of stability and security to other people uh, around the world and to not be potentially a part. Of, I'm not ruling out Alberta that it can't be a part of that. But you could also see a shift as far as where that export opportunities come from, right? It might not necessarily come from Alberta and Saskatchewan as much. It may come from other parts of the country. That, to me, is going to be um, an interesting dynamic. And hopefully, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan take advantage of this opportunity and not just let it slip out of their hands because I think um, they could be left behind. But I think that identity layer is also on top of that, which, which is, I think, adds to the complexity of it. Yeah. And I think it's critical to note, you know, they, the, the energy industry in, in Western Canada, Alberta and Saskatchewan is providing an important service for Canadians and the globe in providing energy that we all want and desperately need, especially today. And so recognizing, you know, that modern life is powered by those fuels, um, I think we all, you know, should be thankful that we have them here and that we've developed them with some sort of Canadian branded ingenuity um, and developed an industry around them. And that supports, you know, lots of high paying jobs, Mm -hmm. economic development, opportunity for Canadians. That's a hugely important contribution to the Canadian economy. I mean, it's 10 percent of the Canadian economy comes from the energy sector. That's big and important. But, you know, as we think about, I think, the identity challenge of, of transitioning the industry in which you work, um, there's no reason why Alberta and Saskatchewan can't be important to the future energy system. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think, my point in particular is it's less clear and there's more work to be done yeah. to develop the case that they should be, you know, the new energy system might be more distributed. That doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, it, renewables are a good example of this. Alberta has maybe the best solar resource in Canada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We should be doing a lot of solar energy development in Alberta, and we should be moving it across the country because that is, you know, we've just wrapped a piece on electricity, building the renewables where they're the cheapest and then moving the electricity across the country is the most cost-effective way to decarbonize the electricity system. Mm-hmm. That's a huge opportunity for Alberta. And it, it, you know, this identity 
aspect of being the energy providers for the Canadian economy, that doesn't need to go away. I just I just hope that with these potential new opportunities and people and that uncertainty that you're talking about, that folks don't get entrenched in, in thinking, okay, that part's uncertain, so I'm going to double down on the thing that I know, right? When we know that 60 to 70% of our oil exports go towards transportation fuels and we know where that sector is heading towards, right? Like, I just hope that people in Alberta and Saskatchewan, Western Canada realize that there is this opportunity. It's uncertain, but we need to start really exploring that. And I know there are a lot of great people putting their minds on this. There are industry is also moving forward with this, but I guess I'm more talking about the general uh, public and the thinking on that. So, Yeah. And I, I think there's another nuance there, which is that we can't lose sight of the importance of the existing energy system through transition. Mm-hmm. You know, short-sightedness, I think, is part of why we're facing the sort of energy crisis we have today. I think, you know, in Europe, it was um, relying too much on a single source of, sure. of gas. Um, but, you know, underinvestment in oil extraction is, is what people think is causing high oil prices today. Um, and so, you know, recognizing the, the social impact of that and the financial impact on, you know, everyday people from high energy prices is really critical. And, and I think that's where, you know, the current energy system matters a lot and, and investments in it do indeed have a meaningful impact. And as relates uncertainty, you know, tech development might sustain a, a higher fossil fuel use in 2050 than we currently think is feasible. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, there's companies in Canada across the world working on these very complex direct air capture systems, which could, you know, allow us to use fossil fuels for longer and more than we think is currently feasible. Mm. Those would be huge developments and would help, you know, kind of preserve and and make transition a lot easier because we wouldn't have to think about how we get a plane in the sky on batteries or hydrogen, which Mm. like presently we can't even physically do. Um, So I think that tech development part of it and recognizing that the future energy systems to 2050 is extremely uncertain is a really important part of of transition thinking that we need to not lose sight of. Yeah. Out of those uh, six or seven pathways or so, which which one gets you the most excited? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think I'm excited about all of them for different reasons. Uh, I'll start with the ones that I, I think are, are exciting because they have so much white space. Mm. Um, what do you mean by white space? We just don't know what we're going to do with them. And so there's okay. opportunity for tech development and and real, you know, out-of-the-box thinking. So mm. when I talk about exciting new technologies, I don't think Canadians generally think about the agriculture sector. Mm. You know, I think we have a very cute version of agriculture. But I think when you really get into it, uh, Canadian farms are extremely tech heavy and sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the challenge with agriculture is the emissions come from different places than what we're used to thinking about. Like mm-hmm. 25% of farm emissions come from fuel consumption. Mm-hmm. The rest is like, you know, enteric fermentation, which is like basically cow burps and, right, and right. manure uh, related emissions. And then the other stuff comes from fertilizer use for crops. And so 
those, they're just like different gases. They're complicated. We don't really have systems for capturing them. The best thing I think we can think we can do is like more sustainable regenerative agriculture practices. Mm. And those are like systems changes for farmers. But like, you know, we could also think about storing carbon in soil the way plants naturally do. We need sensors to know how much that's happening and to mm -hmm. facilitate the trading of these carbon credits based on the soil carbon. Um, and, and those are going to require technological development. So I think there's a huge opportunity in ag. I would say yeah. industry also has a huge opportunity for innovation. You know, how do we decarbonize steelmaking? What about new cement chemistries that don't mm. involve calcination? Um, that that's where a lot of the emissions come from is the actual physical, like the physics and chemistry behind making cement. Have you heard of that? Have you heard of that company, Carbocrete? I think it's yeah. Uh, I mean, there's lots of innovation yeah, happening in this yeah, space. That's what's yeah. like really interesting: yeah. the opportunity to kind of store carbon in cement right, or right. concrete, yeah. or you know, new chemistries. And how do we do that? How do we deploy that? Mm -hmm. Like. These are huge kind of generational engineering problems that are like really intellectually interesting. So mm. those sectors excite me. They're also like really hard to conceptualize, mm. challenging. I think, you know, the, the built environment and transportation sector excite me for different reasons because, you know, I think about the potential opportunity for electric vehicles to like reduce air pollution. They're quieter. They like performance wise in a lot better, of cases better, they're better yeah. you know they're easier for consumers the problem is just they're costly True. and so the the quality of life improvement that transition could actually pose would be pretty huge and i also think there's an opportunity in the policy space to rethink our society's design in ways that that are improving because you know if you think about the personal transportation challenge even if we can get everyone into evs which is a huge lift mm. There's still a question about whether or not that's the most efficient pathway. You know, I live mm. in downtown Toronto. I don't know if you hear the condo they're constructing, yeah. lab yeah. banging happening. Yeah. Um, in downtown Toronto, we have a relatively well-developed transit system. Mm. What we don't have, I, in my opinion anyway, is the right structure of like inter-regional transportation. Mm. You know, people live in Brampton or, or Burlington. They're taking the train into town if it's available but we don't mm. have enough train capacity it's not that pleasant to take the train let's say so thinking about societal design structures that improve the experience of taking these lower carbon options and then make our lives better like what if my commute from burlington was seamless i took my bike to the train station there was bike parking there so i got a little mm -hmm. bit of physical activity i'm a little healthier for that and on the train, you know, there's like a Starbucks on the train. I can get my morning coffee. There's right. great Wi-Fi. There's these amenities yeah. Yeah. from this yeah. transit. Yeah. I'm not sitting in traffic. I'm rather I'm on the train. I can be working. I can read a book. I can listen to a podcast. I'm having a much more pleasant commute experience. And to end, it's all solved so that like it takes the same time to get from Burlington to downtown Toronto on the train versus driving. And then all of a sudden, I don't need a car anymore. Yeah. You know, these are potential opportunities, I think, to improve our society while being greener. And I think that's maybe where we where we don't focus enough attention in transition is like these these areas where the technologies are better and we might be better off deploying them. But it's a it's kind of a mindset shift. Mm. And I, I think, you know, cities have always kind of been doing this reinventing, but 
can we borrow those insights and bring them to other parts of the country, to the suburbs or to rural communities? What are the potential development opportunities these rural communities could see in transition? Yeah. That kind of like economic revitalization around this kind of generational investment we're making in energy transition, I think is really exciting and, and getting it right is hard. But if we do, it could be a huge shift for the country. Yeah. We absolutely, I mean, absolutely need that in the greater Toronto area and outside of that. I mean, uh, part of my wife's family lives in the Kitchener-Waterloo area and we were just there about a month ago and I hadn't been there in three years because of COVID and the Highway 401 leading up to there has expanded to six lanes. It's crazy. And so clearly people are traveling from that far to work in the GTA. Um, so your point about interregional travel and that experience and just the infrastructure absolutely needs to improve. Um, we had somebody on our podcast who's the owner of a regenerative farm and, and supplies a lot of clean, organic, um, humane raised meat and, and products as, as such and, uh, is, and, and follows regenerative agricultural practices. And I asked him, I said, you know, you've really set up a good business model. You seem to be doing well. Why wouldn't more people want to do this? And he's like, the first of all, he's like, it was hard. Like it takes a time and investment to to enrich his soil, to build up his grasses, all that kind of stuff. So the economic incentive is not always there. And he's like, I think that if there was a, a carbon market, and you kind of talked about carbon trading in the agricultural sector, that he feels like more people would actually get on board. Do you know anything about that and like how far we are away from establishing carbon markets in the agricultural sector? Yeah, I mean, we've been thinking about it pretty intently. You know, we're a bank. Markets are sort of our wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, um, I think there's a lot of challenges, particularly in the egg space, around developing a carbon market. The, mm -hmm. the kind of prevailing knowledge, I think, in the industry is when you store a, a you know kilogram of carbon in the soil it's not clear how long that stays in the soil mm. you know when you do it in soil that's not being tilled and then you till the soil um, that stirs it up and maybe it goes back into the atmosphere mm. um, and just like measurement of how much carbon you're actually storing when you convert an acre of farmland to regenerative practices mm -hmm. These are just fundamental uncertainties and markets don't mm -hmm. generally work very well under mm -hmm. fundamental uncertainties. So I think, you know, the narrative in, in the sort of market focused part of the, the economy is if we can resolve some of those uncertainties with these sort of measuring, monitoring and verification technologies, soil sensors that measure carbon in the soil or modeling, you know, efforts that we, we believe in, then there's an opportunity to develop that market. The question, I think, is largely around how you deploy that. And, you know, the thing that's thorny about regenerative ag is, you know, one of the big practices, conservation tillage or no tillage, works really well in one part of the country, the prairies. And, you know, in wetter parts of the country, like eastern Canada, you, you have to till the soil. Mm. So the opportunity, the availability of regenerative ag, I mean, sorry, you don't have to till the soil, but like it, they're you may need to do it more frequently than, right. you know, it doesn't work as well in the prairies, speaking right, in right. absolutes. I probably shouldn't speak in absolutes. But the point is, you know, the, re the regenerative ag practices we do in one part of the country might not be the same across mm -hmm. the country. And so accounting for these regional differences and ensuring the opportunity is the same for, you know, farmers in 
Ontario and Saskatchewan, when they grow totally different things and have very different farm economics, is, is going to be a bit of a challenge. And so maybe there's an opportunity to start somewhere where the economics make a lot of sense and the carbon credits could be relatively small and, and then they would incent a lot of action. That would be a good place to start. The other thing I think in the ag space is, you know, regenerative ag helps with fertilizer emissions and like, you know, sequestration, but it doesn't address, you know, a big part of Canada's farm emissions, which come from livestock. Mm-hmm. So what practices are we doing to address those? That's a real, I think, critical question. Yeah. I think like about 50% of our emissions come from enteric fermentation and right. almost all those come from cattle. Right. Have you heard of, uh, we had uh, somebody as well who talked about the potential for seaweed to actually reduce methane in, in cows. Have you heard about that? It's really fascinating. Yeah. And there's another thing, there's this food additive, feed additive for cattle called 3NOP, which oh, is okay. like just okay. a, a, you know, acronym for a chemical's name. I can't remember yeah. what the yeah. chemical is yeah. called, but that has very similar impacts and is like approved in some parts of the country, parts of the world, I think in, in Europe and Australia in particular, and isn't yet approved in Canada for mm. use, um, for I'm sure good reasons by the regulators. But, you know, so it is, I think there are opportunities and, and this is why I find the ag space kind of inspiring because yeah. we have some solutions, you know, they're not as good maybe as switching from a, from a, a in, combustion vehicle to an, an ev but there's space here for innovation and i think that's sure. what's so interesting about ag and the other thing is like you know we all eat what we eat might differ across the country but like we all have to eat yeah and so yeah. getting it right matters a lot and canada is a huge food exporter too you know we talked about the energy sector but like we like do i think like half of the world's canola yeah so yeah. getting that right continuing to help feed a glowing a growing global population is going to be really important yeah. for our sort of strategy going forward. What can provincial or I guess the federal government do to um, help bring certainty or clarity to a carbon market, a potential carbon market for agriculture? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe I'll take that question a bit more broad because there's uncertainty in all the carbon markets, including mm-hmm. the sort of industrial pricing regimes we have. And there's this idea, you know, that some economists have been discussing most prominently um, Blake Schaefer at the University of Calgary and Mm -hmm. Dale Boygan at the Canadian Climate Institute and Michael Bernstein at Clean Prosperity Institute just put out a paper on these carbon contracts for differences, which are, are designed around effectively this PPA structure for renewable electricity, which I Mm -hmm. talked about earlier as an important lever. Um, And what these contracts would do is sort of make you know, people who produce carbon credits, whether that be agricultural producers or carbon capture, you know, installers or whatever it might be, um, make them whole if the price of credits isn't where the government said it's going to be. So, you know, the government has this, I think it's $50 today, the carbon price and going to $170 in 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, that schedule could be guaranteed via bilateral contracts or even more intensively, the credit price in the actual credit market could be guaranteed or the credit price and quantity could be guaranteed. There's lots of questions around how you do that structure that I think will going will will be um, discussed at length now. This idea is still in early days, and you know if you think about the potential risk for governments in guaranteeing these credits, if they don't have control over the individual credit prices with their policies, then it could move from you know a relatively small exposure where you're kind of guaranteeing the political uncertainty 
to one where you're guaranteeing billions of dollars of payments to industry because mm -hmm. your carbon price isn't where you thought it was going to be for reasons outside of your control. So I think governments are, are reasonably wary about that. But to your point, I think it's important that we think about the economics of the project when we're arguing that it's a, a useful one to proceed with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you think about agricultural producers, I think a large part of the challenge now is there are carbon credits available to them. They're just low value carbon credits, like a couple dollars an acre. Mm. And that makes the, the challenge of, you know, taking a big risk on the yield that this regenerative field is going to have in the future, which might be lower, might be higher, who knows, yep. and how much carbon it's going to store. If you're not getting a big payment, you're not likely to do it. Um, so that's point one. And then if the carbon credit price changes, then you've done your project economics based on a certain, you know, carbon credit price. And if it's lower than that, you could be losing heaps of money. And mm -hmm. so especially for farms where profit margins can be pretty thin, um, taking those big risks that could swing your, you know, annual ability to feed your family one way or another, it's not very attractive. Yeah. So we're going to need to be doing some policy thinking on how we ensure that some of that risk is shifted across the agricultural value chain to people who are who are you know better able to manage it. That's a real yeah, question. Yeah. I don't know how you do that, but that's yeah. the that's the policy question in my mind. Yeah, very interesting. I think another exciting opportunity in the agriculture space is um, the evolution and growth in like vertical farming and even like cell agriculture, right? Like lab lab grown meat and. Um, think there's a huge opportunity there to, to lower emissions from by utilizing those technologies. So I'm, I'm curious to see how those evolve going forward. But have you looked into that at all? Yeah, we have some colleagues working on uh, that stuff right now, actually. Yeah. I'm not that well versed on that, yeah. that aspect of the project, but it is interesting. There's no yeah. question. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, again, it's this question of like, yeah, it's an exciting time to be thinking about innovation because we have a huge societal problem to address and it's going to require innovation across every industry in every business line mm -hmm. doing new interesting things taking some risks and seeing how they play out and i mean that's a policy challenge for the country do we have the right environment for that kind of wholesale risk-taking exploration yeah. innovation environment i don't know the answer to that yeah yeah how much of because i think the fuels that uh farmers use i don't believe that they are um, uh, like the carbon tax doesn't apply to those fuels, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But I want, yeah, I wonder if that's also limiting any sort of transition in that space. Yeah, I think the challenge there is typical of of emissions intensive and sort of global commodity producing industries, mm. which is, you know, you want to use a carbon tax as an incentive to change technologies if technologies exist. Mm -hmm. So if you think about fuels being used on farms, you know, a, a wheat harvester uses diesel, I think, in their combine. So taxing them for the diesel put into the combine is going to help them make the economics of switching to an electric combine work if an electric if combine exists, exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and if that doesn't exist, then it's just a cost that they have to pay for the diesel day and they don't have any choice. 
But that's this, that's to some extent the same thing we're all facing, right? Like like you said, EVs are not affordable for most people. My brother-in-law, uh, he put a deposit on an F-150 Lightning and they came calling. They're like, oh, you're, we're ready to move forward if you want to. And he just wanted like the basic F-150 Lightning and it was originally like 65 grand. And they said, oh, it's actually 95, 98,000. He's like, I can't deal with that. Like, how are we ever supposed to make this transition? So um, I hear what you're saying. I just... I think it applies to to a lot of us as well. So I don't know. Yeah, it, and it's a good point. And I think that's the, the kind of inherent logic. So, you know, why we've structured the carbon price to include a rebate. So, you know, yes, you pay the fuel charge when you fill up your car. But at the end of the year or now quarterly, you do get a payment for mm-hmm. what the sort of average fuel price charge is. And that should help you offset the cost the additional cost of the carbon price on consumers and you know the the best way i think for people to conceptualize this is you know if i buy the ev now the lightning is an extreme example i think like mm-hmm. there are more affordable yes, EVs yes, available yes, yes. or you can switch to a plug-in hybrid and right. cut your gas bill 60 percent or something that's still right. a good outcome in the transition um if you think about this idea that, you know, okay, I'm switching to a plug-in hybrid or an electric vehicle. I'm not paying the fuel charge and I'm still getting the money from the fuel charge rebate. Well, that's helping kind of shift your thinking on the, the investment. Because if you don't do any action, then yeah, you get the rebate, the average rebate, and that probably offsets a large part of your carbon costs. But if you do the, the abatement, then you don't pay the fuel charge and you still get the rebate. Yeah. So that's the that's the elegance of the carbon pricing regime we've put in place in Canada. Now, there is debate, and the IMF just put out a, a modeling result that shows that there are some benefits to taking away the rebate and repurposing the funding to this sort of fee-bait structure, which is instead of just giving everyone back a lump sum transfer, you give them back a targeted transfer. So you add additional EV subsidies. Hmm. So if you want the rebate... And to avoid the carbon tax, you have to buy the EV. Now that's, you know, and and the government is making the EV more affordable. So there's Mm -hmm. some intuitive logic to that. There's some interesting results about how that impacts, you know, inflation and investment in the economy and consumption spending. And there are some aspects of it that are are beneficial and other aspects where it, you know, maybe kind of makes some trade-offs. What I think is critical, though, is that the path of the carbon price is low but rising, to send this sort of signal, like you maybe don't need to buy an EV right now, but your next car should be an EV. Yeah. Maybe you don't have the money to buy a heat pump for your home, but if you have an extra two, $3,000 lying around, maybe you replace a couple of your windows to be more energy efficient. And you can kind of take this gradual phased in approach where people are cutting their carbon costs over time. And we're, we're doing this gradual emissions reduction. We don't need everyone to go straight for the, the zero net zero option mm-hmm. right away, especially as, you know, ability to pay differs across the economy. Yeah. And that's what also industry wants, right? Is that level of certainty as much as I'm sure those higher emitting industries would probably prefer no price on carbon. But at the end of the day, to have that level of certainty, know that there's predictable pricing in place. Like I would absolutely imagine that that's going to help how they project and and think about their future investments well and you know i think there's a, a, 
perhaps overlooked aspect to the carbon price too, which is by being a carbon pricing leader globally, mm. Canada can encourage industry to think forward 10 years and say, you know, what's the business opportunity in 2030 rather than today? Mm. Mm. And if the whole globe is serious about tackling climate change, there's a real business opportunity in being the producer of the clean technology that I've talked about, mm-hmm. or the provider of the hydrogen, or the you know undisputed global leader in solar panel technology. And we're seeing that play out. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, China is the leader in solar panels, and they have a big economic industry out of that, mm-hmm. which everyone is going to rely on to decarbonize their economies. Mm-hmm. So, what's the next solar panel? Mm-hmm. And carbon pricing sets out the incentives to develop those business models. Because doing everything the old way, doing everything the fossil fuel intensive way, is becoming less compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we talked about a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to revisit the whole conversation, digest it all, but uh, it's been really fascinating. I- I'm wondering, are you okay if we shift to our two questions that we ask every guest? Sure, yeah. Let me just open up my list here. Yeah, no worries. Um, I try not to surprise people, so hopefully you had a, a bit of time to think about it. Uh, so first question is five for dinner, dead or alive, who are five people you'd want to have dinner with? And would you have them individually or together is, is always a little added twist. But uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so, okay, I, I I won't bore everyone and just choose like five economists, though I probably could. And I think <laughs> that would be a very interesting dinner party for the five or six of us and nobody else. Uh, so since it's a dinner, I think always good to invite a food person. Uh, yeah. so my first guest would be, uh, chef Dominic Cran. I don't know if you know her, but no. she's, uh, the first and only, I think, well, certainly the only, maybe the first female three Michelin star chef in the U S which is a restaurant in San Francisco. Um, really like cool person doing some innovative food, yeah. like change, driving change in an industry that has been largely male dominated. And I, I think that's really cool. What's and, the type of cuisine that she focuses on? So she does some um, like seafood heavy, I think Pacific Northwest cuisine is like sort of her focus. Okay. She like, you know, her, all of her menus are poems and it's all very artful and thoughtful. Yeah. And I, I like, I like this idea of like disrupting this food industry mm. and saying, Hey, there's art here. There's beauty here. You know, and, and I think, I mean, really the story there is women can do that and, and really well to the highest caliber. And I, I so I, I think she's really cool and I would have love to have dinner you, with her. Have you been to one of her restaurants? Before? I've not, okay, uh, okay. but I am hoping to go one day uh, yeah, when yeah. I find myself in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, the next person is an economist, also a female economist, it's Eleanor Ostrom. She's okay. the first female economist to win the Nobel Prize. And uh, I think it will come as no surprise to listeners that I think she's really cool because she, her, her work really focused on um, this economic concept, the tragedy of the commons. So the, mm. the collective management of a collective resource. The classic example is like sheep out grazing on a common pasture in a, in a town. But, you know, obviously the climate system is an example of one of those global common. Mm. And what's interesting about her work is... The traditional economic literature up until her work um, argued you basically needed government regulation or private property ownership to deal with this tragedy of the commons. There was no other way to get around it. And her work really was showing no like collective solutions can actually do this mm. and putting some structure around what those collective action solutions look like um, economically. And I think that's really important work to have in this sort of space 
that I work in on a daily basis to remind ourselves like we don't just need forceful government regulation or like private industry to solve this problem. We can, you know, through collective action, get our heads around a, a sort of global commons problem. Absolutely. And that I find that deeply inspiring um, that there's economists hmm. uh, working on that. And then uh, I'll do one more economist, I promise. That's uh, okay. He's, okay. He's another one. Uh, I find Paul Volcker, who yeah, was yeah. the chairman of the Fed, um, during a period of very high inflation, both very interesting as a case study today, but also I think there's a conviction of purpose with which he acted in his role as Fed chair mm -hmm. to do what needs to be done with conviction really for the public good, you know, to, you know, what I think were very unpopular decisions at the time. But that's what that's what I thought. He's got he received a lot of criticism, didn't he? I mean, when you raise interest rates to double digit yeah. levels to tame inflation, I yeah, don't think yeah. it's very pleasant for people. But sure. recognizing there's like, I think what I find inspiring about um, Volcker is the, the conviction with which he implemented his mandate for the public good and mm -hmm. the instructiveness it, it gives us to, you know, the present environment of fighting inflation and recognizing mm -hmm. there may need to be pain in the near term to do that. But also, you know. A, a bit of kind of like the spoonful of medicine for the economy mm. um, and and being able to communicate to that that to people is really important and then to change speeds my last two dinner party guests are completely unrelated to environment or economy um, although maybe tangentially um, I'd love to have dinner with Freddie Mercury for being okay. yeah. you know a, a border challenging conceptual artist changing you know the vision of what pop music was for sure living his life authentically and not apologizing for that. I think mm -hmm. that's really inspiring. Um, and I'd love to have dinner with Tom Thompson, famous mm -hmm. Canadian painter mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, Algonquin Park fame, mm -hmm. given mm -hmm. personal passion for that. And this, we talked about connection to nature as an important part of my journey, but Tom's paintings are really about that connection to nature, the beauty of the natural environment, especially in Canada. And, and we have this beautiful thing here and we should celebrate that more. With a beautiful five, would you? Did you say you'd have them together or individually? I don't know. It's such a disparate group. I feel like maybe I would do like the economists' dinner party and the non-economists' yeah. dinner party. Yeah. <laughs> this is my experience anyway. Can't talk too much economics before yeah. people's eyes glaze over. <laughs> uh, last question. Uh, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Yeah, maybe I'll leave with a bit of an inspiring message, which is the only thing I know for sure is we're going to tackle this climate problem somehow. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the big thing of it, and it's really the other thing I kind of know for sure is uh, tied to this, which is that human ingenuity is what solves major challenges. Mm -hmm. And there's a boundless um, ability for, for human innovative thinking to solve problems. I mean, I'm sure... Other people have had this experience, but I was actually flying into Calgary Airport a couple of weeks ago for mm. some meetings, um, and it occurred to me as I was kind of flying low over the city how remarkable it is that we're able to fly these metal tubes through the sky <laughs> uh, and connect the world in a way that would have seemed insane to people in the mid-1800s. Yeah. And so if we can solve these engineering challenges in really impactful ways and develop them continuously over time... Uh, for aviation, which seemed impossible, or getting a man to the moon, um, we can do it for other things too. And so we'll we'll tackle this problem and it's gonna be through innovation and invention and, and there's a sort of limitless ability for humans to do that if we put our minds to something. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, 
I don't want to uh, ruin your inspiring end in any way. I don't know if you heard uh, Louis C.K.'s bit about uh, sitting in an airplane and how oh, everything is amazing yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I just thought about that, so I did mention that. Well, hopefully we don't get complacent about the, the innovation we get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was fascinating. I really enjoyed this time. I, I imagined what the conversation would have looked like, or at least what I was hoping the conversation would look like. And it exceeded my expectations, like the number of things we talked about and the things you weighed into it and how, how you discussed it. Like things, some things just went by my mind where I have to really replay and listen to this conversation over again. So I think the listeners are definitely going to benefit. Really appreciate your, your time today. It really was a pleasure. Um, we'll include all of links to Colin's papers and any contact information and his bio in the show notes and share this episode and, and hopefully you folks learn as something as much as I do. I did today. So thank you, Colin, for joining us today. And um, hopefully maybe we'll have you again on some other day. Yeah. Great. Thanks. This is fun. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thanks everyone. Talk to you later.